The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Each week they present a public forum whose mission is to deal with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and to promote critical thinking. So, without further ado, here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. Good morning, I'm George Baggett. I'm um, a member of the All Souls Unitarian Church. Uh, this morning, um, we have a forum speaker, Craig Vollen, who is the chair of the Agriculture Committee of the Kansas Sierra Club and also a member of, of the Sierra Club's uh, National Food and Agricultural Grassroots Team. And he's planning on describing the uh, goals and practices of regenerative agriculture and how to keep, how to help address the problem of climate change. Um, I wish you would all turn off your cell phones at this point. The we will have time for questions and answers. And Craig, thank you, George. Glad to be here, and uh, on this holiday weekend, which is about food more than anything else, or it's supposed to be, aside from marketing. But So anyway, we're going to talk about the food system today. Regenerative agriculture and the climate change. Here's what the problem is with the, the greenhouse. Uh, you're, I presume you're all familiar with greenhouse gases are the cause of the climate change problem. And these are the three uh, gases that are related to agriculture. And carbon dioxide uh, is the big one that you've all heard about. It's also the standard that all the others are related to as far as impact. 79% of U.S. emissions and about 40% remains in the atmosphere after 100 years. So that's one of the big problems with carbon dioxide is it's so long-lived in the atmosphere. Methane uh, is 11% of U.S. emissions, 25 times more potent, though, than carbon dioxide, uh, but it remains in the atmosphere just 12 years, which you could then say uh, controlling, better controlling methane is a, uh, is a good way to really get at this problem. The other chemical much less known is nitrous oxide, N2O, 7% of U.S. emissions, but 273 times more potent, according to the U.S. EPA. And it remains in the atmosphere 112 years. So that's a biggie. Even though it's, it's percentage-wise, it's, it's not that high. It really needs to be something that uh, is closely monitored if we're going to get anywhere. So these are the major carbon sinks. The problem is that these gases, are, particularly with fossil fuels, they used to be buried under the ground. And, of course, we've gone out there for the last uh, several hundred years, but even further back than that. And we have uh, taken these minerals out of the ground and burned them, and that's the main part of the problem. And you can see that the... Uh, uh, the pools of fossil fuels is still huge, 5,000 uh, billion tons. Uh, and But soil is 
3,000 uh, organic and almost 4,000 uh, billion tons uh, in the soil. So anyway, the problem here is that um, some of the atmosphere, some of the uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere does go back into another pool where it's not a problem. In particular, the uh, ocean takes some of it, uh, and then it goes to trees, and the trees put some of it, 60 of the 110 tons, into the soil. So the whole point of this uh, presentation is to describe the potential for the soils of the earth to essentially reabsorb uh, this, uh, this carbon dioxide. In the United States, agricultural soils have lost 30 to 50% of the carbon contained prior to cultivation. Uh, and that's mainly about, uh, I'd say, 200 years more intense, although there's been cultivation going back thousands of years with the Native Americans. Uh, and soils constitute the largest terrestrial organic pool, three times the amount of carbon dioxide currently in the atmosphere, as you saw earlier. Uh, the total, this is global worldwide, the total potential of carbon sequestration, and sequestration is a word that it means that you just get it out of the air and down in the soil is about 6.5 billion metric tons per year for 60 years. The 60 years is the estimate for how long it would take if you could sequester that much, which you probably, we probably can't, uh, then there would no longer be any capacity in the soils after about 60 years, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. So Here's the biggest part of the problem as far as agriculture is concerned that about, uh, I guess it's been about 80 years now, really post-World War II, um, a lot of people who thought they were really smart decided to change the way of agriculture with the idea that we were going to feed the world. And uh, so they started changing the way we were growing food. And it is if you're just looking at food from the pure standpoint of mass, it is more efficient, a lot more efficient, some of the techniques they started. But they ignored and continue to ignore the side effects of industrial agriculture. Uh, one of them, of course, is deforestation. And this is really a biggie because trees hold an, a lot of carbon. So if you're going to clear forests in order to grow food, that uh, is one of the biggest problems or the contrib con contributors to um, the carbon dioxide in the air because that wood eventually rots and goes back in. And we'll talk about how we can reverse that. Um, the other is the loss uh, of or organic matter. What happens is um, that this is the existing organic matter in the top six feet or so of the soil, in particularly the top two feet, um, is that when you plow it up and expose it to the air, that uh, essentially bare soil, then it becomes oxidized 
and you get uh, carbon dioxide and some uh, methane and nitrous oxide. Uh, the other way that this organic material, which contains the carbon that you want to keep in the soil, uh, is blown off when you leave the uh, fields bare, then the wind comes and blows it off. And you might remember the um, back in the 40s, or it was the 30s, I think, the massive problem of dust, the dust bowl, uh, that where the dust actually was encountered from the, the dust from western Kansas and other areas in there made it all the way to Washington, D.C. And then our politicians said, well, maybe there's a problem, but we can't see where we're going. So we know what happened there. And in fact, there were some, uh, they acted, got busy and did some things to prevent that happening as badly. We still do get a few dust storms and droughts. But uh, so we know that we can do that if we put our mind to it. Um, the other problem is that when you leave fields bare like that, the soil hardens. I've got a backyard like that, actually, where it just gets so hard that it, the water runs off of it and takes with it some soil, and that soil has organic material in it, so we're losing carbon uh, that way. Uh, then you have, because, uh, because you have poor drainage in that hard soils, uh, then uh, uh, the water the water runs off and you don't get use of it for the crops as well. And, and it doesn't go down into the soil. Where And, it, and under certain circumstances, you will get a generation of nitrous oxide and methane uh, because nitrous oxide is formed when you have uh, low oxygen and uh, high water, uh, essentially anaerobic conditions. Um, now, the other major problem is the use of chemical uh, pesticide, pesticides, uh, and that disturbs the soil microbiome. That's all the bugs down in the soil. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and this is really one of the biggest problems with industrial agriculture is that they started making uh, ammonia from the air, industrial processes, uh, after World War II. In fact, it was they had all these factories that they were using it for weaponry. And they said, well, what are we going to do with them now? So they started, that's how the use, the heavy use of ammonia fertilizers, uh, chemical fertilizers started. And um, unfortunately, that's a soluble form generally. And when it goes into the soil under those conditions of, uh, or those anaerobic conditions, you get a heavy output of nitrous oxide. So I'd say that's the heavier, that's the, <clears throat> the worst impact of industrialized agriculture. Um, then there's uh, generation of methane, carbon dioxide from uh, animal production, which are called CAFOs. I've talked about that before, the concentrated animal feeding operations. Uh, and also animal feed production. And finally, and this is a long list, I know, but that's the trouble with industrial agriculture. That they, it, was, it was like, let's get a quick efficiency. 
we're going to feed the world. Let's get this production up. And nobody paid any attention to uh, the, the side effects, to the environment, also to the quality of the food. In fact, um, I remember coming across this fact some years ago that uh, you've heard that the yield of corn has doubled over so many years. Well, they measure yield by mass, the weight. Well, they made more money when they increased the yields or the mass. They paid no attention to the nutritional, the, the nutritional content. So many studies have shown that even though the yields are higher, the amount of nutrition in them only went up modestly. So that's because you can make more money by just, so that's how they were bred, was they bred for yield, not for nutrition. That's sort of a sidebar there. But, um, and then you've got, uh, because it's so mechanized, you end up having uh, a, a big fuel input uh, for all of the irrigation machinery, feed inputs for the animals, and also the long distribution of uh, product. Should we get, be getting all our food from California and southern Florida? I mean, orange is okay. I give them that. And, but there's a lot of stuff we get from California we could get locally. Okay, so what is regenerative agriculture? It's defined by its objective, which is the rebuild of soil organic matter and soil health. In other words, farming in harmony with nature. The main benefits are great nutrition, uh, greater nutritional density of crops, better water management, and most importantly, in this context, the sequestration of, sequestration of carbon. The principal techniques we're talking about are no tillage or no till agriculture where you don't plow it up anymore. Uh, cover crops that are um, mainly is to cover the fields. If you cover the fields, you're going to get a whole lot less dust and then drought and so on. It's kind of obvious. And also diverse crop rotations. You rotate in various crops to add uh, diversity to the population in the soil of, the, of all the, the microbiome. Um, and also you bring in legumes, uh, many of which fix nitrogen. So you get the nitrogen. Instead of some factory in Alabama making nitrogen, shipping it all the way out here or wherever they make it, you, there's plants that just grab it right out of the air, right on the site, which is really Pretty simple. Uh, that's called nitrogen fixation. And finally, there the other thing that's important is if you're going to have these cover crops that you're not going to harvest for some product, you want to keep. You basically want to lay them down on the ground and incorporate them lightly. You don't want to disturb the soil, but you put them down so they also go back into the ground as organic. So you're returning the residues to the soil, also the crop residues. Now, the interesting thing about this is it's not new. All of these things uh, have been practiced historically uh, before industrial agriculture and are still practiced by uh, a number of farmers. Um, and the good news about this is this isn't some future technology. This is technology everybody already knows about. It's just not being used. 
that much because it's maybe a little harder to do, and it does take more thinking. Uh, is part of the National Gra uh, Grassroots Food and Ag Team of the Sierra Club. There's several farmers that are constantly putting out, uh, and you know, constant buzz about regenerative agriculture. And these guys, uh, or these females too, uh, they have studied this stuff and they think real hard about their farming. And I've noticed in all of this that these are farmers that don't just listen to some, you know, some uh, extension university expert tell them what to do. They go out and figure out, they go out on the land, they almost... Uh, they look at it, they listen, they feel the soil, so that they basically incorporate themselves more into it. Uh, now, this is also important. Um, as you know, a lot of our fields that we grow crops on were taken from forest land originally, particularly further back east. And so one of the practices that's considered part of regenerative agriculture is to plant trees. For example, you can plant them and also hedgerows, all kinds of more uh, woody material or uh, plants can be put around pastures or around your fields, sometimes in your fields. There's also, and I'm no expert on this, but there's forms of interplanting of, of these plants where the uh, in-between rows even uh, to, um, it has its mainly to build soil health, and also to, uh, instead of using pesticides uh, against insects, you can actually attract um, beneficial insects. But if you have certain kinds of plants in amongst your crops. So at any rate, planting trees in the head, that, is a, that has a bigger impact than the other practices, so it's a very important part of it. Now, why is it that these things work? Well, no-till reduces the oxidation of soil organic matter and protects the soil microbiome. Uh, cover crops extract uh, CO2 from the atmosphere and exude carbon compounds into the soil through the root interaction I'll show you in a minute. And so this uh, increases the health of the symbiotic microorganisms down there. Symbiotic means that they, the plant and the insect have a common interest, and so they work toward, they're working toward their own interest, but at the same time, it serves the interest of the other entity. So um, this is really important uh, because uh, we really are having a water problem around the country, particularly in California and some of the traditional uh, agricultural areas. And so we need to improve the health of the soil so it holds more water. We get better use of what water is available. Okay, so now we're going to talk about our friends, the soil microbiome. Those are all the little bugs in that they're by the billions in the soil everywhere. And it's really a dawn on me one day, this is really analogous to the gut microbiome, just in the last two decades, scientists have discovered that all this stuff in our own gut is helping us. It is actually helping us process food. It even has even more uh, other uh, connections to our 
bodily functions. So it occurred to me, this is really the same thing. This is instead of being against nature or afraid of bugs and bacteria and so on, the idea of a good bacteria is a fairly new concept because when I grew up, all the bacteria were bad. Well, now we know they're not. And so it's really the same thing. We have our gut uh, microbiome and plants have their soil microbiome. Um, Okay, the rhizosphere is the in, this the uh, area around the roots of these plants, and that's where the uh, microbiome operates. Here's a picture of that, uh, and you have the all the little bugs in there, and bacteria, and even in the funguses. Fungi are very important in that whole process, and so they basically kind of run in the show down there. So the plant gets what it needs, and they get what they need. But in the process, they um, put carbon back in the soil. Now here's uh, two fields. This is uh, from the NRDC, uh, where the seal, uh, field on the left was, uh, the practices there were regenerative. The field on the right uh, was uh, industrial practices. And so you can see what happened when they had a heavy rain. The field that uh, was done right uh, was able to drain away that water, which incidentally would reduce the formation of nitrous oxide and methane, whereas the other one is flooded, and so all, a bunch of gases will come off of it. It'll be detrimental. Uh, this uh, this is a busy graph here, but uh, mainly look for the black-colored part of the graph. That shows that, uh, like cover cropping, is very low cost. Uh, and also, interestingly enough, grazing with legumes is, and the grazing part of it, and we'll talk a little bit about that, is also a low cost because part of the problem is you're not going to get farmers to do regenerative practices if they're going to cost them their profits. So this is crucial, and we'll talk about the farm bill here shortly. Now we're to animal agriculture, and this has been controversial in, in the debate about uh, what to do uh, because the raising of animals and their products uh, that we make from them uh, has both uh, positive and negative impacts. The one on the left is in Kansas. This is um, the largest cattle feedlot in Kansas. It's permitted for, wait for it, 140,000 cows in one place. The picture on the right is the largest dairy in Kansas, 35,000 dairy cows. Now, 40, 50 years ago, the typical dairy was 40 to 80 cows. Maybe it'd get to 120. And it supported a family, and they were all over the place. Now, as far as dairies are concerned, particularly in California and western Kansas and uh, up in uh, Oregon and Washington, uh, you'll see these much bigger ones. This is also in western Kansas. I about fell over when I came across this file. and. Kansas Department of Health and Environment. This is a manure, uh, manure lagoon. This is where you have, when you have a large hog operation, hog TAFO, 
this is what this is what they do with all that waste because when you and this is really simple when you concentrate all the animals in one place you concentrate all their manure and that becomes a big problem is what to do with it without polluting the water and aggravating your neighbors so anyway this is uh uh, what they look like in many of the lagoons in western Kansas where they raise hogs. Well, they raise them all over. But Now, rotational grazing is considered part of regenerative agriculture. Uh, and one of the, the, the argument is that we know cows do enteric um, digestion, which emits methane, which is one of the problems. But the difference between that uh, the big cattle feedlot you saw is that cows also do things when they're on uh, grazing on pasture that mitigate this methane. Okay, and the big argument is how how much it's um, mitigated. Uh, but what happens is that the when they they if it's properly done, where they uh, do. They have little paddocks where they move the cows around all the time. And then that allows a paddock that's been eaten to grow back. But they're always spreading their manure in the urine, uh, which fertilizes the thing. And um, so here's another friend. Uh, the dung beetles, according to one source that was on Wikipedia, can bury 250 times its own weight in a night of manure, 250 times its own weight. They bury it right in the ground. And when they bury that manure in the ground, they are sequestering carbon. So this is just one of the ways in which uh, having cattle is not as much of a problem with the climate change as some people would say. Now, when they're in all these big cattle feedlots, it's different because they don't have any grass. They're all on dirt, and they have these huge piles of manure. I've been out there and seen some that are like 30 feet high. They pile them all up, and they sit there. Well, if they sit there for a while, and it's anaerobic inside, you're going to get methane out of them. Uh, instead of having, them, having our buddy here put them back in the ground for you. So... We need to get rid of CAFOs, and I've said that for years. I even made a presentation here about that. Uh, and, but I'm not ready to say that we should get rid of uh, animals on uh, pasture. Uncertainties. Okay, I've given you a quick run-through here uh, of regenerative agriculture. Uh, so here are the uncertainties. Uh, what about the permanence of these gains? And uh, when I mentioned that you could fill the soil up in uh, 60 years, you could basically haul, haul, uh, sequester carbon, but it would, the soil uh, carbon pool would be full after 60 years. So that means we can't just do this and, and not continue to quit emitting carbon by burning fossil fuels. So we... Regenerative agriculture is not the total answer. It is part of the answer. And the more is 
Equally as important part of the answer is for us to be quit burning fossil fuels. Uh, and of course, you're well aware of that argument. Uh, the other one in this is one that's not talked about near as much. But if we're going to uh, use regenerative uh, methods and, and plant trees and that kind of thing, then we've got to somehow reduce the pressure that has caused these trees to be cut in the first place. This won't work if the human population continues to grow at the rate it is now. The, these, the 8 billion humans took 12 years. Went from 7 to 8 billion in 12 years, and they're projecting another billion in 2037. That's 15 years because it's slowing a little bit. So I just want to point out that that is, in my opinion, climate change is not the fundamental crisis in the world. It's population growth because population needs all the stuff they want. So uh, there's also, uh, even for regenerative farmers, uh, remember when I said that when uh, you get soluble nitrogen in the presence of anaerobic conditions, wet and low oxygen. You get nitrous oxide, which is so powerful, 273 times carbon. So um, even the this isn't something that we can just say, okay, we did we're, we got we're doing these practices of regenerative agriculture, but the farmers and they have to be incentivized to continue watching it to make sure that the water drains away or they design things so that they do not get into conditions where you get nitrous oxide. So I don't know how that's going to work out necessarily. Uh, okay, they also the high levels of meat and dairy consumption are inconsistent with the positive role of rotational uh, grazing. Uh, one thing about uh, Rotational grazing is it takes more land when you put the cows on the land. Well, if you're uh, taking more land, then it may be that we can't produce quite as much of the uh, dairy products and in, in, uh, meat. Uh, and I think for health reasons, it's best to, as I'll mention in a minute, I think that we, from the American meat diet is artificial. Uh, after World War II, it was typical, and I even remember this being so old, that uh, that you would on Sundays you'd go to Grandma's and you'd have a roast. Okay, the rest of the week maybe a few times you would meet me. But one time I uh, was in uh, west uh, up north of the city, and I went to an antique shop, and there was a whole. The whole wall was covered in old brochures about food. And I, I bought a bunch of them and looked at them and found out that in the 50s and 60s, the Department of Agriculture got together with the big uh, meat associations, the cattle and hog associations. And they did a big propaganda campaign saying that we're going to bring meat from the edge of the plate to the center of the plate. You need to be get enough protein, you've got to eat meat every single meal, the center of the thing. And that's how in, um, 
and that was particularly true of, of beef. And so that's how it is in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the consumption of meat went way up. That's not really necessary. Uh, I'm not against it, but it's not necessary for us to be eating so much, having burgers all the time and so on. So uh, in order for regenerative agriculture to work, it's pro in my opinion, it's probably going to require uh, that we have to modulate the Americans' uh, diet in that regard. Okay, so this is what we can do. And then I'm almost done here. Uh, there's actually a, uh, a new certification called Certified Regenerative Organic, but it's in its growth, early growth stages. So if you find something in the grocery store that says that, I would give preference to that product. In the meantime, you can buy local, regional, organically grown veggies and uh, grain-based products. Uh, the certification system for organic is pretty good. Uh, there's some things that, like they're allowing uh, hydroponic now, but uh, which I don't agree with because the soil is where it all happens. But the, uh, that's one thing you can do is, is if you're going to buy food, buy whenever possible, go organic organically uh, grown and there's lots of little not little anymore but big chains that specialize in it um and also um one of the interesting things when i said that when you have cover crops legumes uh, those are uh, perennial plants have the advantage of having long root systems so the longer the root system um yeah the the more of the carbon gives down into the soil so if you buy things that uh like berries rhubarb artichokes asparagus things that come back every year if you start having a diet that focuses on that where possible then that would be uh good and there's uh, the land institute that you're familiar with i know rita um has specialized in developing that for 40 or 50 years now. And uh, Kernza is now on the market. You have to kind of look for it, but that's a grain. And that that would, in effect, be your one contribution you can make toward uh, solving the problem because it has, uh, I know, uh, what was the founder of, uh, yeah, Wes Jackson, which I've heard him speak a couple of times. He used, to, the first thing he did, did on this talk was to hold up a kerns of plant and the root was like he couldn't even raise his arm high enough so you could see the bottom of the root it was like six feet down so that is a he's done a real service for uh for us and so whenever you get a chance that's just now getting onto the market by that also when it comes to animal products buy only pasture raised animal products uh and from farmers you know if possible and the best way to do that is at uh, farmers markets because it's pretty well available anywhere in the, in Kansas City there's several farmers markets that you can get that what you shouldn't do though is buy animal products in a typical grocery store chain grocery store because if you do what you're getting unless it's certified certified regenerative you're going to get something from a CAFO a big animal factory. Now, you'll notice I didn't include in the organic 
the meat products because one place the USDA has failed miserably is to enforce the concepts of organic on uh, animal products. So you now have, you can go in and uh, to a store and there'll be some uh, a milk brand that says it's organic. Well, that just means that they let the cows out for just a little bit. There'll be 10,000 cows in that facility and they'll let the let them out in the yard for a little bit and they'll feed them organic feed. I'll give them that. But you basically, uh, uh, the animal product part of it, uh, it, there are some brands, and I'll talk to you later about that, that are okay, that are legitimate, but a lot of them aren't. Uh, so don't buy animal products from a typical chain grocery store because they'll come from a CAFO. So the here's the other thing we can do. The a farm bill is coming up for renewal uh, in 2023, and in, and farmers do a lot of things according to the incentives they get in the farm bill. Uh, they subsidize them in many ways. I won't get into all that, but uh, basically you can contact your congressperson and say, um, please uh, change the incentive structures to help farmers transition to regenerative uh, practices. Uh, and a good source of information on that, with, is some have portals to, you can contact your congressperson or uh, like the NRDC, the Sierra Club, and uh, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. That's a really good one in, in SAC. You can look that up on. The... So that's it. So we can now have questions. And if, when you, if you have a question, please come up to the microphone rather than from the audience. This question focuses on Kansas primarily. My understanding is, is that the farmers in western Kansas are beginning to understand that they are not going to be able to draw as much water from the uh, ground as they have been doing. So if we assume that there's less uh, operation of that of those sorts that take a lot of water in western Kansas. Is it true that the harm that you're talking about has already been done and will not be impacted substantially by that? Or what what can you see as as some of the results from those sorts of changes? Uh, well I'm I'm well familiar with that uh, problem of declining uh, aquifer. The High Plains Aquifer is declining. There's only a few decades left in many areas. Uh, part of the problem here, again, goes back to industrial agriculture because uh, they're growing corn out there where there's 16 inches of rain a year. That's what the rainfall is uh, at the border with uh, Colorado, uh, whereas here we get 34, I believe, 36 inches of rain. As long as they continue to uh, grow out in these area, these dry areas, corn and soybeans, which require enormous amounts of water, then we're going to have a problem. So the first thing you got to do is to switch to lower water using crops. Sorghum uses less, uh, but they could also uh, do more cover cover cropping and that sort of thing, which would help as well. But you're right, the uh, They've been unwilling. Part of the problem goes with the Kansas legislature, um, which is one of many. 
uh, is that they don't want to change the rules about who has water rights, whereas nobody wants to give up. Well, there's some exceptions that they're doing some things, but basically people, it's first in, <clears throat> first in time uh, gets the rights to the water. <clears throat> and so they, there's no incentive for them to not use as much as they want and grow whatever they want. So that's going to require some changes. And the uh, governor came out a week or two ago and talked about that, that she's going to pay attention to that. Uh, unfortunately, that's only one part of it because there's also surface water pollution that's not being attended to. So I'm coming at it for the moment from the consumer um, I don't know where you can get Kearns in Kansas City, and I'd like to hear about what you know about the meat products you get at a place like Natural Grocers. I've switched most of our meat purchasing to that, and we only eat meat once a day. But I think they make a real effort to get uh, products from pastured animals, but I, my advice is to go to the farmer's market. You can get uh get a freezer and go there and and get uh enough for you know a couple months so you don't have to go back every week that's what i do i've had a small it's a little bitty freezer and uh but i get all my pro such products from uh farmers i actually meet face to face now there's some that uh you can go online there's some uh lists uh, national lists and local lists of farmers who are doing it that way or doing pastured and uh, they'll deliver they'll deliver to your door if you want to do it that way so uh, i do like natural grocers i trust them uh, but i i don't I, I can't guarantee that what you're getting there animal wise meat wise is truly uh pastured so it, it if it says it is it probably is oh the kerns are uh, well, that one's, uh, that's, it's just, uh, I, it's available in certain cereals like Cascadia Farms, but I was looking, looking for that just last week and didn't find it in this store, the, the one store I was looking at. So I think the best thing to do is to Google it, uh, Kearns of Products, and then you can, I know you can get it o online. One of the. Uh, statistics I heard at the Land Institute not long ago was about the destructiveness of corn to the soil, growing corn, and that uh, they were estimating about for every bushel of corn that was harvested, it would essentially consume or destroy about two bushels of the topsoil. So a very destructive crop, probably for a lot of the reasons that you've outlined here, having to do with the erosion and water loss and so forth, but also the crop itself is being of a high you know, consumer of soil. Uh, using regenerative agriculture, does that does that loss of soil go down to zero, or does it go from two bushels down to one bushel, or what? What what's the extent of the gain by growing corn using these regenerative methods? I don't have a particular um, statistic, but if it's done truly regeneratively, it would be much much less uh, because this. Because when a runoff with soil occurs on slopes, uh, because the water doesn't go down into the soil, it runs off, it takes and then goes into surface water. You've seen many rivers after big rains, 
and they're brown. Well, duh, why are they brown? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I can't really answer that directly, but I, I'm confident that uh, there are farmers who are growing corn regeneratively that do not have that problem. That's all right. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to comment on something. You said that population was very important, and I agree probably a thousand percent. Of those books that I mentioned, I have a plot of the population versus year in a semi-log plot. And there's two straight lines, and the breakoff point is around 1940. If you take from 1940 now and take the slope and use that as a constant, the production in the year 2100 is 26 billion people. Can you comment on that? Well, um the, the the estimate I last estimate I heard was that it it, it isn't going to um, level off in another fifteen years. It's going to be another billion people. But there is some evidence in uh, even some developing countries of um, people having fewer children. Uh, so there's some progress being made. It's not being made fast enough. Well, the trouble is nobody's talking about this. If you Look at the politics and around the world. Nobody's really talking about there's too many people because they're afraid of offending someone, and I can understand that. Uh, but it's something that we really uh, need to face. And and this isn't new in nature. I mean, you've heard of other animals that uh, that grow way out of their niche in their ecosystem and they go away. Uh, and so this is going to happen to us if we don't do so. I don't. I think we would have a total crisis well before we got to 29. Where would you put 29 billion people? Uh, so uh, if we're not going to, and this is a really tough one, you don't want government to get into people's lives that much. So my answer is that we need to empower women, particularly in the uh, developing countries to have control over their bodies so they don't have to have 14 children. And and that is the way it is in some of those places is that they can't do anything, just have babies, and it's not their fault. So how do you do that? Um, well, it's, it's happening somewhat. I think women are more powerful in our country now, and I think with the Internet and all, and this is speculative, but I think women in uh, other developing countries all are on the net and they see that women aren't getting kicked around anymore in this country. And we know of recent votes. Uh, so I think it's happening and I've noticed more um, uh, females in these countries being in leadership positions, but it just needs to happen sooner. And I, I don't know how to make that happen, but I think we have to encourage empowering women to control their bodies. Um, as a result of drought conditions in France, uh, the argument for small farmers and big farmers is that they, they're trying to capture the water and ponds and reservoirs, and the small farmers are being left out. Do you see the possibility that uh, scarce water supplies will be a focus of reservoirs developed by these big ag companies and essentially taking the water away from small farming? 
Well, I, I think that's the answer. That's pretty obvious. Um, that, and in the West, uh, huge amount of that water, it does go for irrigation, but for big operations, not the little guys. And you're familiar with the lakes that they're showing, the big reservoirs they're showing uh, that are much below where they used to be. But the other thing is something like 30% of it's going to the cities in California. And so uh, the small farmers and the smallish farmers, there's some intermediate size that would do regenerative agriculture, uh, really don't get the incentives in the farm bill. Uh, it's the big guys that do that are incentivized just to yield, even if the products aren't any good. So uh, I think that's a serious problem. And you're going to, I agree that you're going to start to hear more about it from angry farmers. There's also a racial imbalance where African-American farmers don't get any breaks. There, there are some efforts. A lot of these groups are bringing that up. Um, all, all three of these that I mentioned of the groups, NRDC and SRAC and the, and the Sierra Club are saying we've got to also, uh, not just African-Americans, but uh, Latinos, all of the little guys, we need to start incentivizing them to grow uh, food. And uh, so that's another thing we need to do. Thank you very much. Seven, eight years ago, I went to a presentation I got wind of over in Johnson County. And it was one of the leading researchers at uh, the Land Institute. And the audience was... Apologize for this, but it was Johnson County gardeners. The disconnect, the inability of a land institute speaker, who is really a quite good speaker, um, the inability of his being able to communicate with suburban gardeners was incredible. Can you comment? on that gap in understanding? Well, I can believe it. Uh, that Because, well, you got to give them credit, though. The Land Institute is very much focused on the larger scale food production, and I'm, I think that's good. We had speakers uh, on Zoom last spring that are addressing, uh, that wasn't the Land Institute, but you remember uh, we had a Zoom program where you can get this compost. There's these uh, big compost companies now around urban areas that you can get for very low cost compost. That's the main thing that can help gar gardeners do this as long as it's you don't let it get wet all the time because even it'll put out methane and nitrous oxide. But uh, they were talking about people in their lawns. You don't need all these chemicals on your lawns or... You can basically just put in compost. I've been doing that on a small scale on the plates that I'm living now. Um, so I think there is another level of this. My presentation was mainly the big picture agriculture. But I agree with you. There is a real role for each and every one of you that do gardening uh, or even want to have a, a lawn. Uh, or better yet, you can just let the let the lawn go and grow back <laughs> into what it used to be. Uh, so 
I, I agree that that's there needs to be more talk about that. And but we had that speaker, and I, I think that's recorded somewhere. Yeah, it was a forum forum program that I, I arranged for. So I don't know if you're familiar with the book Tomato Land. Uh, the author was being interviewed several years ago, and he said he wrote the book because he was riding in his car on a road in Florida, and a truck passed him by, and something popped out, and he wondered what that was, so he pulled over in the side. It was an intact tomato which was not squashed. <laughs> and his book basically is on genetic engineering of tomatoes. And what he said was, by genetic engineering, as you pointed out, you want endurance in the shelf life, and you want it to last long kind of thing. And, but it's tasteless because in, in that genetic engineering, they were masking five genes that gave flavor. Do you have any idea of other uh, foods, foods on the market that might have bad flavor, no flavor at all because of genetic engineering? Because you've talked about the soil. I'm going to talk about the plants. Well, I think there's more than... I don't buy tomatoes in the grocery store for that very reason, and they are relatively tasteless. Uh, and uh, another thing about fruit is uh, people are attracted to big apples, big oranges. But And I bought some uh, in the past. Then I get them home, and there's no taste to them. And so why is that? It's because the, the minor... Uh, Natural chemicals that give taste, which are in very small amounts, are not in there. It's full of carbohydrates because that's what they bred toward was weight, size. So when I go to a, a farmer's market and there's some apples there, the first thing I look is, are there some uh, marks on them? Or is there little tiny holes in them or stuff? And then I know they didn't use pesticides. So I'll buy those. And when I started doing that, you have to kind of cut out little places, but the taste was so much better. So you're absolutely right. That's going. That's the trouble with all of industrial produced food, in my opinion. I'm sure there's some exceptions, and that's why you want to stay away from that. And I like farmers markets, but you can't get everything from there. So I understand that, and we have a season here, as you know. So there are limitations, but. Uh, there's a lot of instances of that. I live at Kingswood, which is a senior living facility, so I don't have a lot of control over what mm. they feed us. <laughs> but there is an incredible amount of food waste out of a place like that, and there are people who are wanting to develop a uh, composting uh, situation where they would collect waste. And so I'm wondering if you can give me some recommendations as to who to contact for something like that. Or for the compost? Yeah. Or, or, or to give food waste to them. Yeah, I didn't come so I'm prepared with the name of the company, but it's those people that spoke in the spring yeah, but you're absolutely right. Um, there was just a story out uh, in The Guardian about the Netherlands, about the way they have, uh, they're one of the big exporters now to Europe of food. 
And they're basically, they have almost no food waste anymore. It either gets composted or fed to hogs. So that's not new either. In the old days, in small towns, when there were free-range hogs everywhere, if people had any food waste, they would just feed them to their neighbor's hogs or this. I mean, it doesn't, you see what I mean? That I, I call it the the inside-the-box corporate thinking. Is You could point to that as one of the main problems in America and the world, is that you get you, these guys come out of school, and I came out of MBA school, where they're thinking just like that, and they don't realize that there's simpler, better ways of doing things. And that's uh, that's what's happened with why we have so much food waste, and it goes in the landfill where it produces methane. So uh, there is a, an answer to that. I, uh, so the con I would just Google the Compost Collective uh, or look on our, I have to, I'll look on our um, forum website to see if we can still access that. Thank you, Craig. That was wonderful. Uh, I want to tell you about next week's uh, forum. It's going to be Keith O'Connor, an attorney. He's in criminal law, and he's going to be talking about concerns about the death penalty. And thank you so much, Craig. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dialed to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately, followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni, and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.